All right, well, let's pray and uh, let us begin uh, our study today, okay? Let's pray together. Well, Father, uh, we do uh, come before you today, and Lord, we're thankful uh, for your Son. Thank you for your grace, Lord. Uh, We're certainly not deserving of your grace, Lord, this morning, and never, Lord, we are deserving of your grace. But, Father, we're grateful that you have extended grace to us, Lord, through the cross. Father, um, remind us of the cross, Lord, daily, and uh, keep our eyes fixed on the cross, Lord, Thank you for the Apostle Paul who said that my life is not my own anymore and I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so, Lord, we just pray that we would live a a cross-centered life, uh, that we would never stray too far from the cross. And um, we thank you for the wonderful doctrine of the Trinity. Thank you for the, the profound nature of this doctrine and at the same time, We thank you for the exceedingly practical nature of the doctrine, Lord, that we worship one God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and one Spirit that dwells within us. And uh, Lord, we just pray that all of you would be honored here today, that, that we would learn how to think and that we would learn how to worship more in a Trinitarian fashion that honors you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, we are uh, talking about the doctrine of the Trinity again, and last week we looked at some of the uh, historical controversies of the doctrine, and so I just thought today we would consider some of the other aspects of the doctrine of the Trinity, like the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Uh, Now, obviously, I think if there was one member of the Trinity that you would say, well, this... um, this person in the Trinity is the easiest one to prove the deity of. Which one would it be for you? What's that? Christ. Christ, okay. The Father, okay. I mean, that's typically historic. I mean, that would be your typical answer would be the Father seems to be the more prominent divine person. Of course, until you do a little bit more digging. But, um, but I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think that uh, there are actually that many passages that people can think of where the Father is called God. You know, people say, well, where is Jesus called God? You know what I mean? Uh, in a similar way, there aren't a whole lot of verses that say the Father is God. It just sort of assumes the deity of God. Obviously, it gives him divine attributes, right? But you'd be surprised there's not really not that many passages. But one passage is... Uh, in John seventeen three, in John seventeen three, there you have a binatarian passage. Remember what the word binatarian talks about? Not trinitarian, but binatarian. So what are we talking about with binatarian? Two something. So what is trinitarian talking about? Uh, three. Three what? The essence three one. of God. Well, three three what? There's not three essences, right? No. Three persons. Three persons. So binatarian is talking about two persons, right? Either the Son and the Spirit, or the Father and the Son, or the Father and the Spirit, you know, but it's two persons. And there are a lot of binatarian passages in Scripture. John 17, 3 is one of them. This is eternal life that you that they may know you. And this is obviously Jesus, when he, when he said that, was addressing the Father. And so... 
Jesus, by addressing the Father, says he lifted up his, his eyes to heaven, verse 1, and said, Father. And so he's talking to his Father. And this is why he says, This is eternal life that they may know you, i.e. the Father, who he identifies as the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Consequently, just Bible trivia here, the only place that Jesus Christ utters the words, Jesus Christ. So, um, but he identifies the Father as God. The Father as God. Um, so many other places. Can anybody think of any other verse where the Father is explicitly identified as God? As God. You think John one eighteen? Okay. John 1.18, that is a good verse. That's actually one of my verses, so I'll go there now. John 1.18, right? It says here, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Yeah, so there again. You know, the you Father. Know, yes, ma'am. Um, uh, the salutations, too, in the epistles. Yeah, the epistles, yeah. a lot of the God Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, there is. You know, uh, thanks be to God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that's a common epistolary salutation, greeting, you know, in the in the letter. So, okay, so <clears throat> quickly go to John 1, 1 through 4, because I want to talk about now the deity of the Son, but still in relationship to the Father. And this is one of those very, very important ones, okay? Um, because, you know, I think we talked about this last time, right? Um, some apologists would tell you, well, don't go to John 1.1 1, 1 if you're going to be defending the deity because, you know, it could kind of confuse people or if you don't know Greek, you know, but maybe we can untangle some of this stuff even if you don't know Greek. But uh, it says there in John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 5, just to finish the pericope. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Major uh, textual uh, debate there. What does that word mean? Uh, comprehend. Um, you should have a footnote if, in your Bible to the word comprehend, because it can be either translated comprehend or overthrow or overcome, okay? Um, that's not really our focus, but maybe I'll talk about it a little bit, right? So it's either saying that the dark world that he came to did not understand the light, didn't comprehend it, and certainly that makes a lot of sense, right? Um, I can think of one verse in particular, but like First Corinthians chapter 2, I think it's verse 8, it says, you know, if they knew um, who Jesus was, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. They understood the mystery of what God was doing. They would never have crucified the Lord of glory. So they didn't really comprehend what God was doing in Christ. Or the verse here could also speak of the fact that they did not, the light, the darkness did not overwhelm or overcome uh, the light. Uh, in that sense, speaking of the fact that uh, Jesus was not, Jesus was not overcome by um the dark world that he came into, but in fact overcame the world. And uh, this would be a close parallel, therefore, and one of the 
parallels, they would say, is like John, what is it, 1633, right? John 63. Be of good cheer, what? I have overcome the world. Welcome, guys. Um, just kind of obvious you guys walked in, so I, I'm going to greet you guys, okay? Don't mean to embarrass you, but I'm just greeting you. Uh, okay, so with the Son, then backing up to verse 1, we're in John 1.1. 1, 1. This is a classic text for Trinitarian doctrine because there we know that in the, be- you know, uh, in the beginning was the Word. Now, who is the Word? Jesus. How do we know? Verse 14, right? So context explains who the Word is. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So there, you know, verse 14 is really helpful because it fleshes out what relationship are we looking at here, verses 1 through 5, verses 1 through 4. We're looking at the relationship between the Word and the Father. Okay, and so when he says, in the beginning was the word, we can just posit Christ. In the beginning was Christ. Uh, and Christ was with God. And I would say there, we are to understand God as referring to the Father. That's why the parallel in for, verse 14 is so important. Um, the word was with uh, God. Now, this is really interesting because it uses this uh, Greek, uh, the Greek preposition pros, okay? Greek would look like this. Pros. And pros is an interesting uh, preposition because it literally speaks of a direction like towards. Um, some exegetical commentaries have pointed out that what this is referring to is that he was in front of God, that he was before him, that he was in a face-to-face relationship. And so this preposition communicates some sort of relationship between the Word and God. So they were in some sort of intimate communion with one another. And um, maybe this is fleshed out more for us. Return to John 17. Return to John 17. Because there, maybe this idea of this relationship that is... (laughs) seemingly introduced by this verse is m- more understood or more clearly understood in chapter 17 when Jesus is again communing with the Father talking to the Father speaking with the Father praying to the Father he says Father the hour has come glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you even as you gave him authority over all flesh to, uh, that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life. Very strong, uh, a strong sovereignty verse there. Speak referring to God's elect that have been given to the Son. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. Here's this, this is the critical part. With the glory which I had with you, before the world was. That glory that he had with the Father before the world was is what theologians are referring to uh, when they speak of this intra-Trinitarian relationship. 
this intra-Trinitarian communion with God that has existed for all eternity, which is difficult for us to understand. But before there were angels, before there were humans, before there was a world, before there was a cosmos, before there was anything, there was the Trinity. And God was in a perfect, loving relationship with the per- the, uh, within the personhood or within the Godhead. God was in a perfect relationship with fa- between Father, Son, and Spirit. And um, it's just fascinating, isn't it? I mean, difficult for us to grasp, but I don't think that we can conceive of anything higher than that. That is truly perfect existence. You have three perfect, omnipotent, omniscient, and infinite uh, almighty be- uh, persons, okay, having infinite communion with each other, with infinite love, perfect fellowship, perfect happiness. <laughs> you know, it's just uh, really mind-blowing. Um, so turn to Romans 9, okay? Turn to Romans 9. This is a really explicit passage of Scripture here that I think definitely is talking about the deity of Christ. The deity of Christ. Romans 9, verse 5. Somebody want to read that for us? Uh, Robert, you want to read that for us? Romans 9, 5, you said? Yes, sir. Whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all? God blessed forever. Amen. That's right. I mean, listen to that description of Christ. Okay? Christ is... You know, from the fathers, that is, he comes from the lineage of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He's the holy seed, you know, that goes all the way back to the patriarchs. And it says here, uh, according to the flesh. That's to say, the fathers did not give, did not originate Christ in every sense. But according to the flesh, he comes from their lineage. That's what it's talking about. Ancestry. Okay. And then it describes him as being over all, which is a... A description of his sovereignty. And then, uh, this short little doxology. Okay? God blessed forever. The ever-blessed God. Another way we can describe that. You know? So Jesus here is explicitly, don't let anybody ever tell you Jesus is not called God in the New Testament. Yes, he is. Muslims love to talk about Jesus. Nowhere, nowhere did Jesus say, I am God. You know, well, first of all, he didn't need to say that. They, they understood that that's what he was saying by what he did and the other things that he said. You know, when he called God his father in that special way, <laughs> nobody doubted what he was saying. As a matter of fact, it says, you know, they picked up stones to kill him because they said, well, you're just a man. How can you call God your father? That would make you equal with God. That's impossible. No mere man can say he's equal with God, unless he is God. Also, Jesus forgave sins. And so they knew right there, wow, Jesus, if you, if you have the power, who can forgive sins but God? That's what they said. Right? So the apostles had no doubt that Jesus was the forever blessed God. Any questions, comments, or statements? Yes, sir. Um. And speaking with different religious groups, be it Muslims, Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, um, they will readily admit they love Jesus Christ. But then I ask them if anyone other than God is to be worshipped. They'll probably say no. 
And so then I direct their attention to Matthew 2, 2, where they came and worshipped Jesus Christ. Right. So then I say, hey, they worshipped worshiped him, do you? Right. And then I've had Mormons kind of like... And you can add this verse to that, not, too. I don't really want to say anything to you. You know what I mean? You can add this verse to that, right. too. Right. They'll say, well, we love them. I know, but do you love them? Or right. do you worship them? That's right. I mean, here you have the... And, you know, when he was born, they came to work, the wise men came to worship him, and it actually uses worship. That's right. They bowed down and gave him worship. So I would say that's another text to yeah. show that only God is worthy of worship. That's so right. The Son of God is worthy of worship. Yeah, we're commanded to worship him, yeah. right? Where are we commanded to worship the Son? Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Very good, Jason. <laughs> it says, kiss the Son lest he be angry. The Hebrew word implies homage. Worship, bow down and worship the sun, lest he be angrish, angry and you perish in the way. You refuse to worship the sun, you're going to perish. You know, there how many Muslims in the world? 1.8 billion, whatever it is. They refuse to worship the sun, they will perish. You know, it's really daunting, amazing. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1, because there, God himself identifies the sun as God. I mean, this is really strong Christology now, dealing with his deity. You have God, you have God the Father identifying God the Son as God. In other words, giving him the divine attribute, the divine title, God. That us. Yeah. That us. Oh boy. Kurios. Okay, let's start there. These are just some of the divine names that are given to Jesus. Kurios is the Greek word Lord, right? Theos is the Greek word God. These are corresponding to perhaps in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Elohim, um, Lord corresponding to the Hebrew uh, word for God, Yahweh, okay? Um, which is the covenantal name of God. These are attributed. So how do we know that? How do we know that these are Hebrew derivatives? What information or insight or how do we explain that? How do we make that connection? It's one thing for Pastor Mueller to come up here and say that. <laughs> What's that? Septuagint. Oh, very good. Yeah, the Septuagint. You might read a commentary or a book or something like that, and you'll find this abbreviation, LXX which stands for 70, right? 70 what? 70 scholars that came together and uh, translated the Hebrew into the Greek. And the Greek Old Testament is very important. Why? Because the authors of the New Testament often quote the Greek Septuagint. Jesus was very comfortable with the translation. You know, I try to explain this to people to kind of distill their fears, right? You know how many times the Bible has been translated and blah, blah, blah. He said, what's wrong with the translation? You know? Then they kind of, oh, well, I don't know. That's just the <laughs> argument I learned online, you know? <laughs> and go any further than that, you know? But Jesus used a translation freely. He didn't mind quoting the Greek Septuagint. It was a good translation. It, it, it's the Word of God. It reflected the original Hebrew. Yes, sir. Was that Attic or more coining the Septuagint translation? Um, the Septuagint 
I think is, I, th I think it's Koine Greek. Or I think I think it's the same as Koine just, Greek. Just before they started. Yeah, just before. Yeah. Josh asked a really advanced question. Sorry, there. man. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of Greek? I mean, you have Attic Greek, well, you have Classical Greek, you have Koine Greek. You know what I mean? The New Testament is written in Koine. I think uh, the Septuagint has elements of Classical Greek in it. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. From what I understand. John? John is our scholar in residence, so. <laughs> <laughs> Hebrews 1, didn't I have you turn there? Right? Hebrews 1, chapter 1, verse 8. Um, speaking of the Son, but of the Son He says, i.e. God says, God says of the Son, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. And so right there, this is quoting, what is it, Psalm 40? 46? Psalm 46, right? And... Yeah, Psalm 40, no, excuse me, Psalm 45, 6, 45, verse 6. And there, I mean, this is a messianic prophecy, you know, of the Father identifying the Son as the Davidic king who will reign and who consequently is also divine. Just amazing, amazing. Okay, so that's the Son. Any questions about the Son? Yes, sir. I was just going to say, uh, <coughs> one of the things that you might want to do is if you go to this verse, is always go to the next verse, verse 10. Mm -hmm. Because it says, uh, and it's still to the Son, <coughs> to you, Lord. And the passage it's quoting mm -hmm. is using Yahweh Excellent. in the original Hebrew. Excellent. So, again, you know, people will complain. That, like you said, Jesus isn't called God or Lord. And, or, you know, no, yes, he is. That's right. So here's a passage where he's called both. Right. That's right. Well, so that's talking about the Son. How about the Spirit? Let's talk about the Spirit. Okay. Turn to Acts chapter 5. You know this passage, classic passage on the deity of the Spirit. Um, the Spirit, if we're honest, oftentimes is a neglected member of the Godhead. Sounds almost blasphemous even to say. But I think for some Christians, the Spirit sort of presents mystery and difficulty and for some Christians, I think they look at the, 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 the person of the Spirit as kind of hard to wrap their, their mind around, and so they kind of just kind of stay away from the Spirit, you know. Um, but we should not. It should not be that way. Uh, Acts chapter 3, verses 3 to 5. Obviously, you know the story. Ananias and Sapphira, they've lied. They've stolen. They've been, been uh, deceptive with the money that was entrusted to them. And uh, Peter says in uh, verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land while it remained unsold? Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And so there, I mean... In verse 3, he's lying to the Holy Spirit. Peter sees that as tantamount to lying to God. And so, but let's, let's, let's go to other, other places where I think the Spirit is clearly identified as God and in different ways. For example, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. I'll just, you guys can go there. I'm just going to rattle off what these verses teach. But Hebrews 9, 14 is teaching us that the Spirit is eternal. And it says, Christ, through the eternal spirit, 
offered himself without blemish to God. Cleanse yourself from dead works and serve the living God. So there the spirit is given the attribute of eternality. Eternality. Um, also, in 1 Corinthians 3.16, uh, we are told, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? And so if we're God's temple, here he tells us who resides in God's temple, God, that is God the Spirit, resides in us. Also, Psalm 139, um, Psalm 139, very important because Psalm 139 gives, us the, gives the Spirit the attribute of omnipresence, omnipresence. Where can I go from your Spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. In other words, there's nowhere you can go to escape the presence of the Spirit of God. The Spirit is everywhere. I remember as a little boy, I was, I don't know, four, five years old, very wicked little boy. I used to to hide under the covers and pile on the pillows on top. And I used to ask mom, can God see me down here? Does he know what I'm doing down here? Yes, he does. And even if you went down into Sheol, he would see you. Because the Spirit is omnipresent and omniscient. He knows all things. Okay, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Maybe a more, a deeper um, interaction here with the Spirit. Um, And the Spirit, like our Spirit, our soul, our soul knows who we are. Our soul is who we are. Our soul knows our mind, knows our thoughts. And in the same way, Paul says, the Spirit does the same thing. For to us, God revealed them, i.e. the mysteries of the gospel, the mysteries of Christ, through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For for who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of of the man which is in him even so the thoughts of god no one knows except the spirit of god now paul there is using an analogy a metaphor this is a metaphor of how the spirit relates to god the father the 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 the, the godhead but the metaphor is not is not to be taken beyond that okay because then you could end if you strain the metaphor too much you could end up in modalism or something like that. But the basic construction of the metaphor is there. You know, man possesses a spirit, just like God possesses a spirit. Um, but consequently, the spirit is different from the Father. So that's important to know. But here, the point again is that the spirit is omniscient to the point that the spirit knows everything about God. That's amazing. Because Romans chapter 11 tells us who has known the mind of God. Who can search out? Who can trace the footsteps of God where they lead? Well, we can't. Angels cannot. But the Spirit can. Because the Spirit is God. The Spirit is God. Any questions about the Spirit? Spirit is very important, right? I mean, the Spirit has a huge ministry in our lives. The Spirit is the Spirit of regeneration. 
The Spirit is the Spirit that created all things. He was in creation, moving, uh, moving creation forward, creating alongside with the Word and the Father. Amazing. Just amazing. The Spirit is in every believer. And that is how Jesus is in us, by virtue of His Spirit. We don't have the body of Jesus inside of us or something like that. But the presence of Jesus is with his spirit. Yes, sir? What's a good way to help us presuppose the equality of the spirit in the Godhead? Like, what would be a good practical application? To presuppose? Yeah, to help us like presuppose that like the co-eternality and the co-equality of, of the spirit. Is it I think one of things that you've done? Well, I, I would just start by, by recognizing that the, the attributes of God. The fact that the spirit shares all of God's attributes... That should help you to come to the Word with a presupposition that the Spirit is divine. You know, when you encounter the Spirit, you are encountering God. You know, when you grieve the Spirit, like Ananias, you're grieving God. You know, so um, I don't know that that fully answers what you meant by that question. But you asked me, how do we presuppose well, the I mean, spirit? I mean, like more like practical application, like for those that are struggling with your premise, premise your statement, your preface of, of going into this topic is sometimes the spirit is mysterious, sometimes the spirit, yeah. and we have that default almost because it seems like it's not as blatant as it is the inner trinitarian relationship between the father and the son. You know, what are some things in, in your Christianity over over time that you've done to? kind of remember that the Spirit is well acquainted with the Father and the Son and, and equal and that's right. You know, how do we relate to Him in a practical sense more on that basis mm -hmm. is what I was getting at. Like So we don't have that temptation to fall into the, it's still mysterious, it's still, you know what I mean? Sure, yeah. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's very important to, to understand and appreciate God the Spirit for what He does in us, His ministry. You know, to understand his um, his personal attributes, um, his personhood. You know, the, his his personal attributes. The fact that he teaches us, um, the fact that we can lie to him. Um, so some of these personal traits, you know, is good to interact with, to realize that we're not interacting with a force, like Jehovah Witnesses yeah. would teach. An impersonal force that's not divine. It's just sort of a divine uh, emanation, but it's not divine person. You know, um, I think the personhood of the spirit is very important. Uh, anybody understand? You know, Josh's question different. Want to speak to that? Yes, sir. I was. I was simply going to. I thought I saw a hand. Somebody was. If if you have been touched by the Spirit, if you have been regenerated by the Spirit, I think that information that is presented to you yeah. will be understood appropriately because your your mind has been renewed to understand that it shares the attributes uh, with the Godhead uh, as it sits, and uh, the the more sanctification that you receive throughout your walk. That is done by the power of the Spirit, so that right there should show the the the, uh, the power of God in you because of the Spirit. Yeah, Amen. Yeah, Amen. Yeah, the Spirit is working in us. I mean, the Spirit is very intricately involved 
in us. You know what I mean? I know for preaching, I have to rely on the power of the Spirit. You know what I mean? The Bible says pray in the Spirit. What does that mean? You know, I would say pray according to the resources the Spirit gives you. You know, it says walk in the Spirit. You know, it says don't get drunk with wine, right? Be filled with the Spirit. Well, how do I, how do I be filled with the Spirit? Well, it doesn't mean, you know, like a lot of charismatic churches want you to believe, especially Pentecostal churches, that, well, we need to see some manifestation of the Spirit. Like, you need to start, you know, falling out or shaking or you need to start speaking in tongues or, you know, falling on the ground. That, wow, now you're spiritual. You know what I mean? Absolutely not. Uh, matter of fact, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So if you're wiggling around on the floor, with, <laughs> you've lost control of your body, that definitely you're not being filled with the spirit at that moment you know that is that is just dissipation and excess of you know emotionalism that has nothing to do with god's spirit god's spirit is always produces self-control sobriety you know, i was thinking about this the other day you know like we live in a world right we live in a culture that has made a god out of humor you know can you guys resonate with that it's like and it's in the church, too. It's like no sermon is complete without a joke, you know. I, I knew a pastor one time, he, every sermon he began with a joke. He said, drive me crazy. But anyway, I won't get, get to that, but, you know, but he just had to. Some of the jokes were funny. I mean, i got to be honest. But, <laughs> but I'm just saying, in our culture, we've prized humor so much. We've made an idol out of it, you know. But I defy you to find me five verses right now on humor where it tells us to engage in humor in the Bible. Well, laughter's good for the soul. Okay, I'll give you one. For every verse that you give me about humor, I'll give you 10 verses on sobriety and being vigilant and sober and awake and aware, you know, realizing you have an adversary, the devil, that goes around like a roaring lion to devour you. If you want to go laughing in the jungle, that's your problem. You know what I mean? If you want to go around and act like this is silly, I mean, look, the Bible says we have an adversary. He prowls around. He, he, he desires our, our doom. He desires our ruin. Mm -hmm. And in the Bible, and what's going on in the church today is so sad. And a lot of times in the name of the Spirit, the triviality. You know, you got pastors swinging from the rafters. And you got pastors pulling up Harleys and Lamborghinis on stage. And, you know, uh, you know what's that show? Isn't there a show where pastors do that on TV now? Preachers of L.A. or something like that, right? Yeah, they're Preachers of L.A., yeah. Ryan, it's you would know. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> you keep up with that kind of stuff, don't you? Come on, man. That's your niche. <laughs> but I'm just saying, I'm just, a, you know, just to hear my heart. It's just a call for sobriety. Um, let's look at the intra-Trinitarian work, Matthew 28. Uh, how does the work... So this is sort of saying the Bible teaches the Trinity... And these aspects are there, but I'm saying the Trinity is not just found in the Bible. It's not just um, <clears throat> it's not just an aspect of theology. God is Trinitarian by necessity. By necessity, it is His being. This is who He is. We, you know, uh, there is no. This is part of His perfections. Is to be a triune God. He cannot be anything less than what He is. And in Matthew 28, verse 19, part of the Great Commission, right? Uh, it says, Go therefore, um, make disciples out of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now notice the repetition of the word and. This is not a transliteration. It's not a translation. It's a word for word. It's accurate, in other words. There is an and, kai, after father. There is an and after son. And that is the author's way of separating each person respectively. It would, have been, it would have been different if he would have just said, baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, Spirit. And that, that may give you some grammatical reasons to think we're talking about the same person. You know, modalists like T.D. Jakes, they would say, well, you know, uh, there is really one person, three manifestations. Not three persons, three manifestations, which is a heresy uh, known as modalism going all the way back to the fourth century. Uh, with Sabellianism, but um, and which is wrong, right? There are three persons, not one person. So, but this, if if those kai's weren't in there, well, maybe that would give them some leverage to say, see, it's one person. There's no distinction between Father, Son, and Spirit. You know, um, does that make sense? Um, any questions, comments? Feel free to to ask anything or make any sort of statement, because this is important stuff. I mean, kind of fast forward a little bit because I am running out of time. The doctrine of the Trinity is so important. It is not trivial. It is not optional. Uh, somebody asked me, I think last, last uh, week, can you be a Christian and not believe in the Trinity? I'll let you guys answer that. What's the answer to that? Absolutely not. Did you have a different answer, John? No, You're the only say, one that raised your hand. I was going to say, you, you have to believe in the Trinity, but you might not understand all the facets of the Trinity and how everything works, but you can't deny the Trinity. Very good. Yeah. Amen. And when presented with the truth, you'll, you have to believe in it. Right. Amen. That's right. That's, that, that's the way it works with all doctrine, right? It's one thing to be confused about it. It's another thing to deny it, Right. Lots of perplexing doctrines in Scripture. I mean, um, it's difficult to understand how can Jesus, how can Jesus be both human and divine? How does the hypostatic union work? I've told you guys the word hypostatic many times, right? The word hypostatic comes from hypostasis, <coughs> dual, dual nature, two natures, right, coming together, coming together but staying distinct. Right? It's not two natures came together and they sort of like Plato, they meshed together and they formed some new nature. That's heresy. You know? that, that would be something other than a, a union of two, uh, the, the dual nature of Christ. No, he maintains fully God, fully man perfectly. You know what I mean? Well, that's hard to understand. But if you deny the hypostatic union of Christ, then you're in trouble. What are some ancient heresies that denied the hypostatic union? Do you guys know? Uh, I'm going to write this up here because hypostatic. Okay. Arianism. Arianism. Um, yes. In what way? Uh, so pre presented. Christ and God the same way I guess Jehovah Witnesses present Christ and God as the night the deity of this nation. That's right. 
That's right. They denied his deity, right? They denied that Jesus was divine. They believed that he was human, but they did not believe that he was divine. That's what Arianism taught. Arius is where Arianism came from, third, uh, fourth century. So you're talking about the 300s. Any other heresy, ancient heresy? The reason I'm asking you this is because, what's that? I think Okay. He said, uh, no, no. That's good. This is, this is what I wanted to get to. So docetism, very important. Why? Why is this more, I don't say more important, but why is this more important <laughs> than Arianism? You have the writers of the New Testament combating it. Like First John, you have John. You exactly have right, because it's, <laughs> it's, it's, biblic, it's, it's the, the background of the Bible. Arianism is after the background of the Bible. It's after the, new, the, the early church. Okay? Arianism did not develop until the 4th century after Christ. Docetism, you find elements of docetism in the Bible. So that's important. So let's define it real quick. What is docetism? Josh? I think it's the denying, Putting you on the spot, man. You brought it up. I think it's denying that Jesus came in matter, like uh, where he came in spirit only. Uh, it's a spinoff of Platonic philosophy that whatever is of matter is evil and whatever of spirit is good. Uh, His flesh was an illusion? But yeah, so... Uh, that's where you get ascetic cults. That's where you get uh, other other problems that's combated in Colossians and uh, some of the other New Testament authors. So you remember docetism comes from the Greek word dokeo, no, I forgot that part. which means to seem, to appear. It seems as if Jesus came in the flesh, but in fact he did not. He was like a phantasm, like a ghost, like a spirit being. But he did not have corporeal properties. He did not have human flesh. Uh, remember, uh, remember the word, the word flesh is even in the Bible. It's a very, it's a very cruel way to describe humanity. You know what I mean? It's like telling someone, "Hey, you know, you came in your skin." It's like, "Hey, man." <laughs> it's kind of weird, right? It's like, you know, why don't you just say you were here, you know, or something, right? What are the authors of the New Testament doing when they use the Greek word flesh, sarx? They're trying to stress the humanity of Christ, right? Turn to 1 John with me, 1 John chapter 1, just one. I mean, we're on the deity of the Son, so we're... This is important stuff, and I don't mind tangents like this. I hope you guys don't mind tangents like this, because these are important. But you, you John, uh, Josh hit it on the head that in the early church and in the background of the New Testament, you have these, you have the apostles interacting with certain heresies. Docetism and Gnosticism are prominent uh, heresies. Not they're not the only ones. There's others, but these are important because. You know, you have First John written in such a way that it just makes you think like something's up here. <laughs> you know, something is up. Uh, what was from the, this is First John chapter 1. And it says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes. So there you have ears, eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands. So now you have all these senses involved. Right? Concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen 
and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, what we have seen and heard, right? We proclaim to you also, um, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So uh, just from the get-go, John is making it very explicit that Jesus was both seen, he was heard, and he was touched. Jesus makes a point of that in the Gospels, right? Even when he raises from the dead, even when he's walking on water, feel me here, touch me here. I'm not a ghost. Does a ghost have flesh and bones as I do? Right? Thomas, you doubt? Come over here. Touch my side where they pierced me with a spear. Put your hand in the wound in my hand where the hole is. You know? Jesus Christ, when we get to heaven, Jesus Christ will be fully God and fully man. You will be able to shake his hand. You will be able to hug him. You will be able to, to touch his, his feet as you bow down in worship. I mean, it's just, you know, it's kind of mind-boggling, but it's true. Question? Was it question? And speaking with that, and I would affirm that sincerely, do you believe that Jesus will be the only one of the Trinity that we will be able to see in heaven from the earth? Good, good question. Um... Uh, you can fast forward if you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's flows in prayer, right? Uh, uh, no, I don't. I, I, I think we will be able to see God, um, the Father. I think there will be some sort of, you know, I take that from Matthew chapter 5. You know, the pure in heart will see God. And I don't think he was talking about himself. You know? So that's my, that's my personal take. I mean, we will see the one on the throne with the Lamb. You know, we're not just going to see an empty throne. Yes, ma'am. Well, I was just going to say, you may have already said this, but, um, you know, when, right before Jesus is getting ready to, to go away, um, you know, to die on the cross, he, well, I was listening to the Reform Forum on, um, the, on Jonathan uh, Edwards. And, um, I commend you for that. And Jonathan, <laughs> and, and Jonathan Edwards was talking about um, was talking about how when Jesus right before Jesus died, you know, well, all of the all the prophets and like um, Abraham, uh, Jacob, right before Jacob died, remember in um, Genesis 50, how he's like giving an inheritance, like giving his last words to yep. all of his sons, right. you know, Benjamin this, right. so-and-so this, and yep. he's rebuking and he's saying all this stuff, and um, he's, yeah, it's just like his last words right before he's going to die. Well, well, um, what Edwards was saying was when right before Jesus was about to die, it was almost like he gave a speech as well. A what? A speech, like as well, to his people, okay. the same way like Jacob did, and, and that... He told his people, you know, basically he didn't have anything to give them. He had no houses. He didn't even have a place to lay his head. He had nothing to give them, but what he gave them was like the greatest inheritance of all. The person, the helper, the Holy Spirit. Hmm. And that, you know, that just really hit me because he didn't leave us as orphans. He was going to give us someone, an, an extension of the God. Of himself, right. You know, as That's an inheritance right. to live in us. To help us, and like I don't know who it was was saying about sanctification. <clears throat> oh, you, Robert, how the Spirit sanctifies us. But, but um, what is it? John fourteen twenty six says, "But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, 
whom the Father will send in my name. There's the Trinity right there. Right. Christ saying, here's the Helper, yeah. the Holy Spirit, who the Father is sending in, in my name. Right, right. Yes, that's right. And you bring up a good point. I mean, we're talking about the... Uh, the work of the Trinity, and she brings up another very interesting controversy that in two minutes we don't have time for, but it's the fallocial clause in um, in the uh, Nicene Creed that talks about the fact that the the Spirit um, uh, the Spirit comes to us from uh, both members of the Godhead, Father, Son. Fallocial just means and the Son, the Latin for and the Son, which basically means that he didn't just proceed from the Father, which which is what the original council sort of determined, but he proceeds from the, the Father and the Son, right? And that comes from places like John 14, John 16, where clearly the Son is saying and promising that he will send the Spirit, just like the Father will send the Spirit, the Son sends the Spirit. I mean, talk about the deity of the Son. He has the authority and the power to send the Spirit. I mean, you know, so very important clause there, the fallocial clause, it's called, and the sun. But we are out of time. What a what a uh, good time. I was encouraged. So anyway, let's pray and we'll go to worship. Father, Lord, again, we thank you for the importance of all of these things. And we thank you for revealing your, your son to us and revealing your spirit to us and giving us um, your spirit as a pledge. That great deposit in our hearts um, of things to come. Lord, uh, that we will inherit everything that Jesus inherits, that we will, through Christ, inherit the earth. As Jesus said, the, the meek will inherit the earth, those who are meek in God. And so, Lord, <clears throat> I pray that you would continue to give us truth, Lord, so that we can know how to rightly worship you and how to rightly order our lives. Lord, we thank you. We bless you. Father, it's in the name of your Son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.